Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Body Justice. I started this podcast because I believe that all bodies are good bodies. All bodies are deserving, worthy, and all bodies are whole, just as they are. In today's world, it's ever hard to embody this as our truth. My mission is to create a space to process body image, eating disorders, and relationships through a justice-oriented lens. I'm a licensed therapist in California and an eating disorder survivor myself. I know what it's like to be at war with myself and also to find peace again. Thank you for being here and I look forward to being your host. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Body Justice. Today, we're going to hear from the lovely and intelligent Lucy Walden at Lucy underscore shedding underscore layers as she discusses her journey to full recovery, as well as the importance of dismantling anti-Semitism and how that shows up in the eating disorder space. Lucy is a mental health advocate, an eating disorder survivor, a Project Heal ambassador, and an author of the book Jots on Becoming. Lucy is just simply awesome, and she identifies as Jewish and shares her value of social justice within the Jewish culture and how you can honor your Jewish traditions while being in recovery. Definitely go check her out on Instagram, and I hope you love our discussion. I learned so much from her. Um, As always, you can find me on Instagram at bodyjustice.therapist. Um, Be sure to check out my online course on eating disorder recovery. It is designed to fast track your recovery journey and give you tons of tools to help you in the process. You can find that in um, my Instagram bio link. So without further ado, here is Lucy. Lucy, can you tell listeners a little bit about who you are, what you're passionate about, and how you identify? Sure, absolutely. Um, I'm Lucy Wallman. I am the author of The Jaws of Becoming, and I'm on Instagram at Lucy underscore shedding underscore layers. And I am really passionate about the intersections between Judaism and mental health, as well as eating disorder recovery and how to make treatment spaces more inclusive and more helpful for long-term recovery. Mm-hmm. That is so wonderful. You're such a eating disorder activist and advocate. I love it. I think you have so much knowledge to share. Thank you. I really have enjoyed like taking my own experiences and realizing like how in the future like I can make things so much better mm-hmm. for future clients so they never have to experience like the type of treatment and the type of situations that me and some of my friends or people I've heard of have experienced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you have a book already. Like that is incredible. When did you write your book? I wrote my book last summer um, after realizing that so many of the books that I had read weren't didn't feel like recovery books and the more I thought about it like the fact that you can't even bring most eating disorder books into an eating disorder treatment center is crazy to me that because they're so not geared towards recovery and a lot of the books that are out there are pretty much here's what it's like to have an eating disorder 
and are spreading awareness to it. And I think this is so important during especially mental health awareness month Mm -hmm. of that. Oh, not awareness content is helpful. And just like putting out information of here's what it's like to have an eating disorder. I use this behavior. I weighed this much isn't Mm -hmm. helping anyone. So when Mm -hmm. I wrote my book, I had actually a lot of the journal pieces I wrote during my own recovery. And I noticed how much my writing had changed, Mm -hmm. like how much food and behaviors and all of that were not even part of my writing as I started really Mm -hmm. progressing. And I thought, how cool would it be? Be such a cool way to tell my story just Mm -hmm. through journal entries. Yeah, that's so awesome. And I can so relate. Like I never, well, I did keep a journal when I was in recovery, but even just thinking back to like my daily like thoughts or activities, right? Like I feel like being in an eating disorder is like living in the gray. And then once you recover, like slowly, like colors start to come back and there's just more life in your mind and your soul and your spirit. And it's just such a difference. And I can totally see how that would be reflected in your writing, like seeing this, just how things transgressed. I feel like so many of my earlier journals, I did keep journals almost all the way through. Mm-hmm. I um, wrote pretty much the same entry over and over and over again when I was struggling. Mm-hmm. And I really felt like this Groundhog Day of everything was just constantly the same. Mm-hmm. And even though I think the eating disorder likes to paint this picture of that life is like so much better with it, it's really just the same like mundane, bleak struggles. Like, and remembering, looking back at it, that I really wasn't happy mm-hmm. and I wasn't fulfilled by being in an eating disorder. And I feel like when you look at an image or you look at like a number or something, the eating disorder is like so attached to, it's hard to remember that. But like, I feel like the soul is really reflected in writing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I can so relate to that. Like um, there is no, and it, for my own journey and all the clients I work with, I really believe there is no true joy in an eating disorder. Like it's impossible to have true joy while living with an eating disorder. Of course, like some days are better than others, but you're still in this like fog. You're in this cage preventing you from just living, you know, a full life. Um, And with recovery opens up that cage and you can finally feel joy again. And you might feel sadness and hard things too, um, but your capacity to feel joy is so much better that it outweighs being, you know, in the eating disorder. That's something I've been thinking about, especially since my birthday was Thursday, Mm -hmm. of how much better my birthday was Mm -hmm. without an eating disorder. And it didn't even matter what I did, really. Mm -hmm. It was more just the fact that I wasn't like in this cage that I had been in for so many years. Like I felt like when I was thinking about it, I could have literally been in some amazing vacation in my eating disorder mm-hmm. um, for my birthday. And I still would have like, wouldn't have had the same like happiness or joy as I had by literally like having dinner with my parents, like doing something that seems like so simple, just seems so freeing mm-hmm. after recovering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like the little joys in life become so much more meaningful. 
Um, I remember feeling like after I had recovered that I was like seeing the world with child eyes again, like everything was, was fun and curious and imaginative. And it wasn't filled with like all this darkness and fear that was once there. I'm wondering, you know, cause you recently wrote on Instagram that you were able to reach a full state of recovery. Can you tell listeners a little bit about your journey and, and just what full recovery means to you? Cause I think sometimes there, we can get pushback for even owning that, but um, it's something that I own too. And so I, I really want to hear your thoughts on that. I decided to own it after, for me, I resisted the thought of recovering for so long. Mm-hmm. I wasn't one of those people that was, I don't know if any anyone exists like that. It was gung-ho about like recovery into, um, I remember there was a time in treatment, like where you had to rate your motivation of recovery, mm-hmm. um, like from one to 10. And I think I wrote like negative 12. Like mm-hmm. I, um, and I was in ambivalence for so long. I started struggling when I was like 13, 14. And it took me a lot while to receive help due to like so many like geographical barriers. Mm-hmm. And I feel like by the time I received help, I just didn't really believe anything better could exist. Mm-hmm. And I sort of like lived in this facade of like, oh, the eating disorder is the best it will ever be. And I thought it was sustainable for the longest time. And it took me, by the time I realized that it was something that was killing me and something that was robbing me so much of my life, I didn't have one of those aha moments of, oh, I want to recover. For me, recovery started, it was just, I don't want to live like this anymore. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like taking one step like after another like feeling like I didn't really know what I was working towards but I was just working towards something better so when I finally reached a state of like full recovery I sort of defined it as not that there will never be any struggles like ever again but that the eating disorder is no longer a source of my struggles Mm -hmm. get a bad grade on a test or I get bad news my first inclination isn't to restrict my food intake Mm -hmm. that I'm able to turn inward and deal with the feelings and going to a restaurant some things that used to be so hard and all these core beliefs I once had don't revolve around eating disorder behaviors anymore Mm -hmm. and for me I feel like so much of the pushback on full recovery is because full recovery is something that's really really hard mm-hmm. like I've seen you write posts about this like the eating disorder does serve a purpose mm-hmm. and part of the like, way of getting to full recovery is realizing that the purposes you think it's serving it's not actually serving mm-hmm. and that can be it can be really hard and really scary to unlearn everything Mm -hmm. and just completely I felt like start over and especially if you have a family history of disordered eating or a trauma background or marginalized background it can seem like the scariest thing in the world to like give up the safety blanket which is and I feel like that pushback comes from how could I ever do it because it seems so insurmountable and 
I try to phrase it when I talk about it on Instagram that it was not something that happened overnight for me. Mm-hmm. That it was many, many years in the making of getting there. Mm-hmm. And when I say full recovery is possible, I'm not saying tomorrow you are going to wake up fully recovered. Right. I'm saying if you eventually like choose to face each fear one by one, challenge each beliefs, maybe in a year from now, a few months from now, your life could look totally different. Mm-hmm. But it all starts like with one step. Yes. I so agree. I always tell clients like it's an accumulation of many small steps. It's not one step you take and boom, the eating disorder is gone. It is consistency. It is uncomfortable. It's just like leaning into all the fears and uncertainty and all these tiny steps you have to take on a daily basis that eventually can lead to one big change. Um, Yeah. And I think reminding people too, that full recovery doesn't mean life is just awesome all the time. No, it's like now you are like raw to the vulnerabilities of life. And now, you know, you actually have to cope with some of the underlying things that were fueling the eating disorder, whether it's trauma, um, oppression, um, underlying anxiety or perfectionism. Like now you have to deal with the underlying stuff. It's not all rainbows and butterflies. However, it is 10 times better than being trapped in the eating disorder while still dealing with all those underlying things. Um, what do you think? Exactly. And I feel like I still am dealing with some of those underlying things. And mm-hmm. a huge difference I noticed from full recovery is I used to hold on to some of the things I struggled with. Like they were such a part of my identity. And I feared that if I lost a perfectionism or lost um, underlying anxiety or didn't heal from my trauma, I would just not be a person. Mm-hmm. And I really feel like full recovery has taught me that like my worth and my identity is separate from all those other things Mm -hmm. and has made me so much more comfortable with challenging other beliefs like Mm -hmm. after going back to school I pretty much waited until I was in remission to go back to college and so I didn't really know if I was going to have struggled through perfectionism before because it hadn't come up because I wasn't in school and I was a source Mm -hmm. of my perfectionism and of course it did come up when I started school again but that just meant I really dedicated myself to saying now I have to heal from this Mm -hmm. that it made every change seem so worthwhile conquering because I felt like if I conquered the eating disorder then I need to get not get rid of but shed anything else that could lead to back to the eating disorder Mm -hmm. absolutely I totally agree and those are some of the things that I think take the longest to heal from is the underlying influences whether it's personality traits like perfectionism or childhood trauma or um, anxiety right like those are things that I've kind of accepted are going to be there for the rest of my life but they're manageable, you know, especially without the eating disorder, adding an additional stressor to your life, you can learn ways to manage those things. And it gets easier over time. But for sure, like going into new situations in life is going to bring it back. Like, whenever I try something new or scary, um, the anxiety might show up again, the perfectionism might show up again. But I have more skills to like, put it in the back seat versus the driver's seat, if that makes sense. Yes, that's exactly how I feel. Mm -hmm. And I know 
from recovery, like I'm building those skills that I can prepare ahead of time and sort of learn to cope ahead mm-hmm. and realizing like the value of you. recovery really taught me the value of using these skills. Like I feel like when I was in treatment and my eating disorder and I was ambivalent, I would get those skills and be like, oh, those will never help. Those aren't going to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and but it wasn't until I started like applying them and really making my them my own that I saw the value in them. Mm-hmm, totally. And that is such a common thing I hear from clients too. Um, even when I'm explaining new skills to them or teaching them new skills, they often kind of look at me with this like blank look, like, do you really think that's going to work? And <laughs> I always tell them it's like, you know, the eating disorder can feel like a quick form of relief, but it's not lasting. So you have to keep, keep doing it with these new recovery skills. They take time to work. You have to practice them over and over before they really work. But when they do, they are much more lasting than the eating disorder. Um, and so, yeah, it's like taking that blind leap of faith, right? Like I know the eating disorder behaviors aren't working for me that well. So I'm going to try this new thing, even though it sounds silly or that it sounds like it won't work for me, but just being willing to try something new. And I feel like that can be so hard. I was one of those people that newness always scared me. Mm-hmm. The idea of recovery being always trying something new was such a, um, was like so off-putting to me. But I feel like newness isn't as, I realize newness isn't as scary as things being the exact same. And I feel like, and really just taking a good heart like honest look of is where I am like where I want to stay which can Mm -hmm. be so hard especially with recovery being so nuanced and especially with the physical aspects at the beginning it can be so hard to make like those concrete breakthroughs Mm -hmm. especially when you're not nourished yes absolutely I totally agree um So you mentioned being Jewish as being a part of an important part of your identity. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how um, this aspect of your identity has influenced your relationship to food and your body over the years. I feel like being Jewish has been such a part of my identity for so long. I went to Jewish day school like growing up for a little bit and then I moved to a regular school which was very challenging after Mm -hmm. I wasn't exposed to much of like the outside world before that so it was really hard as like a first grader realizing and not everyone like celebrates Hanukkah or knows like Hebrew words and it was just such a different experience and I feel like it's definitely influenced my relationship with food and in terms of the whole kashrut and the Jewish laws of separating out like good foods from bad foods and like certain foods being forbidden foods. Mm -hmm. It can be very challenging and the whole Jewish camp setting, which I love Jewish camp growing up. And I went to many, many years of a Jewish overnight camp. Now I work at a Jewish overnight camp Mm -hmm. of sort of the diet culture seeping into the Jewish camp community 
Uh, the fact that Jewish camp food is terrible at most camps. Mm-hmm. And so people expect to go there and lose weight. And like weight loss being like such a um, integral part of like Jewish camp. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that definitely influenced it because when I came back from camp and I had lost weight, I, I felt this pressure throughout the year to keep it off. And it just felt like this horrible cycle. Mm-hmm. Is that how it started for you? Like kind of going to these Jewish camps and then weight loss being a part of that. And then, you know, obviously once your body gets malnourished and weight cycles that, that can totally trigger eating disorders. I feel like, Yes, and there were so many things that influenced it. Because, for instance, I struggled with anxiety when I was pretty young. I was, like, six or seven. I started struggling with anxiety. It could have been earlier. And being nauseous every time I got anxious, Mm -hmm. it inclined me to not want to eat when I was anxious. So I definitely spent so many years of my life in this, like, restrictive state. Mm -hmm. I see. And when you mentioned, you know, the Jewish camps, um, what, why was weight loss a part of that? Like, is that because like the forbidden foods were restricted or yeah, I'm curious. No, it was a combination of the, the food they served being very limited and not tasting very good mm. combined with many, many, many hours of movement. I see. And not like exercise, it's not like we were in a gym or anything, but just like walking around camp, mm-hmm. playing like team sports. I don't know if you've ever heard of um, Gaga. That is such a big thing at Jewish camp. Mm-hmm. Like playing, and it's so much fun. And like all those hours of just like moving around and not eating very nourishing foods does cause an energy deficit. I see. How do you, you know, now that you're working at a Jewish camp, is there changes nowadays, like maybe to have more nourishing foods and more options for people so they can, you know, I guess not avoid this from happening? Yes, there is definitely more options. And I feel like counselors now monitor the campers more than I was monitored as a camper mm-hmm. and I feel like given the fact that there are so many different dietary like gluten-free because kids have more allergies than ever before they mm-hmm. have had to vary their options and I'm really excited in terms of talking about like the weight like eliminating the weight loss component from camp mm-hmm. of in two weeks attending um, this fellowship where I'm taking a course called like everybody has a place at camp mm-hmm. and like really how to address fat phobia within camp communities. That's awesome. And so you can bring that back to the camp you work at. Yes. Um, I, was, I was very honored when my camp director said, she's like, I knew as soon as um, I saw this was an offered course, you were going to take it. She's like, mm-hmm. I knew you were going to go for that one. <laughs> That's so great. Um, you mentioned too, the struggle of presenting as white, but not being considered white by white supremacy. 
Um, I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about that experience and what that's been like for you. I am aware and I've increasingly become more aware of white privilege, especially in the fact that white passing Jewish people do have white privilege in the sense that if ever encountered by a police officer or a um or like a regular setting where it's like not clearly like I am Jewish I do have white privilege mm -hmm. and at the same time I've realized like how much white supremacy still targets those identifying as Jewish especially events like Charlottesville in 2017 which hit very close to home for me, given the fact that I also live in Virginia mm -hmm. and people walking down the streets, carrying signs saying like, Jews will not replace us. Mm -hmm. And knowing people at that temple that was, that was targeted. Mm -hmm. um, and the Capitol with swastikas flying and so it's very clear as in, even on social media that white supremacists, white supremacists are not for Jewish people. They do not view Jewish people as white. They think like of the almost like Aryan like master race still. Mm -hmm. And it is true when you, when you look at DNA that there is differences in the DNA. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it, it can be hard in some activist spaces to navigate it because I think sometimes it is true that white Jewish people are white functioning. And at the same time, like pointing out that that could easily be stripped away so quickly. Mm -hmm. Right, absolutely. And just like historically, right? Like there is so much oppression historically, currently um, that yeah, it gets left out of the conversation a lot. And I had so many experiences. Like I know when I'm talking to BIPOC people in my high school of being singled out mm -hmm. for our identities. Like even I remember in English class, we were reading Macbeth, not Macbeth, um, Merchant of Venice. We were reading Merchant of Venice, which has <laughs> a lot of anti-Semitic references. And the teacher calling me out like in front of the entire class I was like what do you think about anti-semitism oh, like just like in so and I was always sort of pinpointed by like I don't want to say like white Christian students as more of the other like I like still it was still made clear that I wasn't them and it sort of felt like I never really had a place mm -hmm. and I noticed like even in um, therapy settings, even with other therapists, like relationships with therapists, I did better with therapists almost with a marginalized history as well. Mm -hmm. I felt like I wasn't treated as like the different or the other or the Jewish one, which I think does happen so much even in treatment communities of being singled out, like even in the milieu. Mm -hmm. as like oh like you're Jewish and that's like the first thing people know about you mm. yeah how does that why does that even come up in the treatment setting comes up meal planning is a huge time it comes up mm. if they're serving a meal with like pork or something like that and then you have to remind a dietitian like 
a hundred times that you can't eat that and they're like oh why and you're like oh they're like oh yes because you're Jewish that's mm-hmm. it comes up a lot like that and even um especially if you go to treatment from like that October November December time of year especially December with Christmas and it can feel really hard to celebrate Christmas for the first time mm-hmm. when it didn't doesn't feel like a natural thing mm-hmm. and then it's sort of that tokenization of oh we're gonna put a menorah up for you mm. and it's like it's a nice sentiment but at the same time it's like very weird and like hearing that that menorah is like only there for you right yes it would it seems like it'd be much better if they just put out a variety of like diverse religious like sentiments and didn't make any connotations about like singling people out or just like let people celebrate what they want to celebrate it and I feel like even if there's more than one Jewish person merging like they're two like they're the same person Mm. Like they're almost like interchangeable from each other yeah like mono like a monolith like yeah since even you're though, Jewish, you do this there could be totally different customs depending on what country for instance your ancestors originated from because I don't know if you know there's two major types of Jewish like ancestries there's Ashkenazi Jewish people mm-hmm. who are from Russia Eastern Europe and more the like stereotypical that you like see and then Sephardic are Spain like Italy Middle East mm-hmm. and they and those have totally different styles of observances and mm-hmm. a totally different um history mm-hmm. they came over from like Europe, because it's so different that it's like so hard to be put in a monolith because it's not, it's not true. Like Jewish people, like any minority are not a monolith. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you think those treatment centers need to know? Like what would have been a better approach? I feel like it would be so much better for it not to be like the hallmark of one person's like identity mm-hmm. that like definitely being aware of the dietary restrictions and the holidays and making less of like a performative effort and more of a genuine interest mm-hmm. right yeah because if there was a genuine interest you wouldn't have to tell the dietitian 12 times about not eating pork right like they would know after maybe one or two times Exactly. And not feeling like I've spoken about this a lot, a politics being something that's like off limits, which also includes discussions of oppression, Mm -hmm. being off limits and higher levels of care. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, And recently, you know, there has been such an uptick of anti-Semitism hate crimes happening around the country how has this been affecting the mental health of Jewish people in our country? I know for me, I feel so much fear and posting about 
like a Jewish, like a post or my Jewish identity because I do fear with the optic that I could get trolls coming for mm-hmm. me. And at the same time, it is really hard and really scary hearing about anti-Semitic events in the news, especially when I hit very close to home. And those are the ones I tend to like remember the most. Mm-hmm. I think it can be so hard, especially when the media doesn't state that there were anti-Semitic intents for the mm-hmm. for the um, event. Mm-hmm. And it can feel really insulting. And it can feel like almost like an exclusion from it. Like there are certain events people very much point and are like, oh, a burning down of the Delaware Chabad in December. Mm-hmm. But then there are some sources that are like, maybe it was just like an accident or. Right. Trying and to like I, make light of it. I remember um, my mom works at a Jewish day school in our town and they've had like bomb, they've had bomb threats. Oh my gosh. To their work and they've had to like evacuate all the kids. And I remember like my mom calling me and telling me about that while I was on treatment. And, like, some staff member being, like, those things happen all the time. Like, I'm sure the two weren't related. Wow. I'm, like, someone threatening to bomb a Jewish day school isn't related to the school being Jewish. Mm. Like, that doesn't seem... Or even when you analyze the Parkland shooting um, in 2018, Mm -hmm. that a quarter of the people shot were Jewish. Yeah. Right, like you can't take that out of the equation. Like it's a reality, like that body hierarchy that we're all on um, teaches us which bodies are disposable and which ones are not. And there's no, like Sonia Renee Taylor talks about this, there's no accident, you know, like it's a form of white supremacy. It really is no accident. Mm-hmm. And I remember that one being so hard because there was one victim who went to the same chain of overnight camps that I go to. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And like a lot of the URJ community um, posting about like how she was like such a, a member of this camp and campers posting on behalf of her. And it's like, that could have been someone from my camp, someone from my bunk. And mm-hmm. like, imagine like how, like that's so hard feeling like someone I can't even imagine like what the families are going through mm-hmm. feeling like their grandfather was beat up just for being Jewish mm-hmm. or like that just seems horrible to me mm-hmm. and knowing, also having that fear that it could happen and I think it was such a part of like my grandparents and my grandparents story of like being so afraid to tell people they were Jewish. I, my grandma told my parents, like, not to tell anyone, like, at school they were Jewish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, like, living in so much fear. It was something that almost you had to integrate into society, and you couldn't identify as, like, a different or the other, even though it's, like, those things you can't really control. Mm-hmm. As much as to mold into like the white supremacist 
ideal. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, is Jewish bodies are also built differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such a huge part of like cultural identity that it doesn't seem like something that's like so that's like so like oppressing to like hide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like in order to you know, survive the white supremacist ideal teaches, you know, those of us with marginalized identities, like the one you're describing, it's like you have to disconnect from yourself just to try to conform and to try to be safe, right? And I think, you know, that has so much to do with the development of an eating disorder because we are taught to disconnect from our bodies. It's not safe for whatever reason. And that lays like the groundwork for an eating disorder to just come in, right? It's like, how can you treat something that, uh, treat something well that you don't, that you, that you want to disconnect from? So like, if you believe that being Jewish is something bad or wrong and you have to hide it, then of course you're going to want to disconnect from that. And that means disconnecting from your body. I really, even when you said that, I was like thinking back to all the times, like, I tried to conform to the very like white Christian like ideal of like the high school and middle school I went to mm-hmm. and like how disconnecting it does feel like because you like as especially at age you want to fit in you want to be able to like go to the Christmas party and not feel weird about it mm-hmm. but you still do and that's such an effort to disconnect from the bodies. Like, I feel like it's such a huge, like, trigger for an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, what are some common microaggressions that people need to be aware of in order to not perpetuate more harm onto the Jewish community? A huge one I've seen is that Jewish people are not oppressed. Mm. And the whole like model minority myth does mm-hmm. affect um, Jewish people as well, because there are so many, I guess, well-known Jewish people in Hollywood and science. And so it's people tend to, like it's by white supremacy, it's like, oh, Jewish people aren't oppressed because look at all they have accomplished. Mm-hmm. And it, that can feel very invalidating. Mm-hmm. accomplishment is not immune to anti-semitism or hatred and another one i've seen is especially with all the protests lately a lot of holocaust comparisons are a huge microaggression mm-hmm. and one that drives me crazy because there's comparing things to the holocaust and like holocaust jokes aren't funny they're not Like, there's not, like, any reason for them. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the tokenization or putting Jewish people on the outside of, like, calling someone, like, your Jewish friend. Or even in, like, television shows, like, the character being, that's the Jewish character Mm -hmm. is such a microaggression. Mm -hmm that Judaism is something that makes someone seem so like foreign or exotic or just different and like different or not human compared to the other characters. 
Mm -hmm. It's like a form of othering, you know, like, why is that even mentioned? If you're not stating everyone's religion, why would you, why would you tokenize that one person? And, and it's always like the same stereotypes of like wealthy and that's another one I've heard a lot like wealthy privileged and yes it is true some Jewish people do have money some do have privilege but so do you could say that about any other religion or any other group mm-hmm. right. and it's not just and just putting it so much with that stereotype is such a microaggression because like any marginalized group there's people who struggle financially there's people who don't struggle financially mm-hmm. yeah and it just pits marginalized groups together you know it's the same with the asian model minority myth it's like if you know as someone who identifies as part asian if i have this expectation that i'm not supposed to struggle as much as other minorities well then what's going to happen when i am struggling i'm going to feel like i can't seek out help i'm going to feel like my struggle is not valid and there becomes this like unspoken um, battle between minority groups because it's like creating this hierarchy among us and that's not how it's supposed to be. And I feel like with that hierarchy among minority groups, it can feel so difficult for minority groups to like connect with each other in a way that doesn't feel like you're having to fight for who's struggling the most. Mm-hmm. And I wish it really wasn't that way because the more I've connected with people from other marginalized groups, I've realized how similar like our stories are and like like being such an ally for each other like is also such a Jewish value. Mm. I love that. Can you speak about that a little bit? One thing I've even... I love the saying like in Judaism, Sedek Sedek Tirdaf, which means justice, justice, we shall pursue. Mm. And I feel like it's the idea that the world isn't like right until justice there is justice. And that Sadaka, which is like doing mitzvot, which doing good deeds, is like in repairing the world is such a part of what makes someone Jewish and it has so much less to do with like what you're I really believe it has so much less to do with what you eat or how much you go to synagogue but like at, being an ally for other marginalized groups mm-hmm. speaking up for like what you believe in I feel like is such a fundamental part of like mm-hmm. what it means to be Jewish and the only way to do that is by being there for other mar- marginalized groups and anti-Semitism exists alongside other forms of oppression and at the same time someone who is Jewish can experience more than one form of oppression such mm-hmm. as Jews of color. Mm-hmm. Absolutely I love that you know like fighting for justice is like such a part of the culture because I think ultimately that is what is going to get you know, the world to hopefully a place of justice and equality is when all marginalized groups can band together and be an ally for each other, because that's what's going to dismantle that hierarchy. Like this body hierarchy we are on is built on these oppressive systems. 
But if we can come together, support each other, support ourselves, like we're more powerful than the white supremacist ideal. Exactly. Thank you for sharing that. That's, that's really interesting to reflect on. I am really grateful for the Jewish youth group I was in in high school as a regional and national Jewish youth group um, focused so much on social justice um, all the way through almost all our like weekend retreats were about like dismantling di different forms of oppression mm -hmm. and giving back and it just opened my eyes to like not only like how like rewarding that is but it's such an integral part of like what it's such an integral part to me of Judaism that for me I automatically connect Judaism for me with social justice mm -hmm. like the two for me aren't separate because mm -hmm. it's so embedded in in the culture and in the religion right it's like that's that's wonderful I never knew that and I feel like it's not discussed that much because I, it doesn't feel like a, such a small sect of it, but there is like one group um, called the Religious Action Center that does focus a lot on that and not everyone who is affiliated with it or grew up knowing about it is necessarily like, there's not as much widespread education about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like there needs to be more um, because that would be so great for all of us. And, you know, it's such an empowering way to think about being in a marginalized identity, right? Like fighting for change and just. And I sometimes feel it's can be so frustrating when other people don't see that mm -hmm. because I'm like, how can you like not? Because I feel like privilege should be so used for like such like dismantling oppression and stuff like that, that like the two just can't separate each other. That you can't mm -hmm. be, I really do believe that like as a marginalized group, you can't not be an advocate for other groups. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Um, speaking of, you know, like being in recovery and being Jewish, what are some of the unique challenges that clients in recovery might experience with holidays like Passover? Um, and how can providers support for both the religious identification and recovery during this time? I feel like for providers, the biggest way they can support that is by investigating like where the intention is coming from. Mm -hmm. That I think you can do it without pathologizing it. And how much like does this mean? And also helping to realize that like there are other ways of preserving that same meaning. Like for instance, Yom Kippur, which is a fasting holiday, what helped me so much in my recovery was I researched like what the meaning of the fast was. Mm -hmm. Like why like the fast happens in the first place. And I realized that was because to bring you more into the present moment, to, to eliminate distractions, to, so you really feel like the centeredness and realizing as someone with an eating disorder, restricting my food intake would not do that for me. Mm -hmm. yeah. That 
and sort of going through with a client like what would happen if you did this and restricted your food take would you feel more present would the holiday be more meaningful for you or would you be more food obsessed more fear and if the fast or the restriction isn't doing the meaning it was intended to then I really believe that the meaning is more important Mm -hmm. and helping other clients like find other ways for that meaning I remember my first Yom Kippur in recovery I um I decided to follow my meal plan the whole entire day because that's what would be the felt like the right thing to do that's what eventually would bring me more presence more it it wouldn't be the elimination of food and I feel like that's what really inspired me to write so many Jewish pieces in my book mm-hmm. and to um, really take on this issue and go on. I really, in the future, want to be a therapist who especially works with Jewish clients. Mm-hmm. That's so awesome. You're going to be a wonderful therapist. Um, yeah, you have so much to bring because I think even in this space, you know, of the mental health field, there's such a lack of understanding um, the Jewish experience and Um, I think clients would be so much better served if we had more diversity in that sense. And it's so rewarding helping Jewish people who are struggling with eating disorders who messaged me or who have reached out to me. Mm -hmm. And I have absolutely loved doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And those who said they resonated with my book or who needed it for Passover, I did a giveaway right before Passover and Mm -hmm. how much it like means to people to see something that hasn't been covered Mm -hmm. finally be brought to light. Yeah. And to know like you're not alone, like, you know, you're such a good role model for that too, because you have been through recovery and made it on the other side and you've still been able to stay true to your Jewish identity and you can have both, right? And understand the nuance to that. And understanding like how to, how to to relate to each other is I noticed when speaking to Jewish groups who didn't know as much about eating disorders it's easy to want to attribute the faith to recovery that mm-hmm. like Judaism helped my recovery. But for me, it almost happened the opposite way through my recovery. I strengthened my Jewish identity that mm-hmm. when my life didn't revolve around my eating disorder and counting everything I ate that that's when I was able to sort of recenter and refocus on what, like what was important to me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's wonderful. And it's so it sounds like a lot of taking the long term view, like really not thinking about today, but thinking about overall, how is this going to help me like bring me closer to my Jewish values, right? And like, being able to have that more longer term view. Yes, that is, I feel like the Jewish like values and me don't has been one of my favorite parts that's something definitely emphasized in my job at a Jewish camp we have um five values like for our camp Mm -hmm. and I feel like even when I thought about opening up a Jewish treatment center one day 
Mm -hmm. I'm like, there will be values that are um, focused on it because um, I feel like that is such like a grounding thing for me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We all need um, values that kind of govern and direct our life. And I think that's one of the hugest parts of recovery is reconnecting um, to your true values and letting go of those eating disorder values. And it seems like if you already have um, a faith that you follow, like being Jewish, then you have something to kind of guide you back to where you really, you know, want to be in life. Yes. And then you just gave me such a reason, like not even like just the value of the fact that the camp values were something that resonated with me so much. And the camp was a huge motivator for me to recover and go back and working there. And I'm like so excited to start um, my job there in a month after not being back for a while because I had to take a summer off for um, my eating disorder for treatment. And then I did last summer online with COVID, but it'll be just so nice to be mm-hmm. back in person. Yeah, I'm so glad you'll be there. That's wonderful. Um, Last question for you, Lucy, when you hear the term body justice, what does this mean to you? I feel like I hear the term body justice, it really means instead of trying to make all bodies like equal or like, I feel like so much of the body positivity moment is just like, love your body, like regardless. Mm-hmm. And that body love, like, isn't always like, the ultimate goal like I feel like we need to start with respect and realizing that all bodies regardless of identity deserve respect mm-hmm. and that they're to be embraced for the natural size they are at and really to stop like colluding with that phobia and separating some of the body um, positivity movement from fat phobic like ideals like even the I remember in recovery, I tried to convince myself that eating X food wouldn't make me gain weight mm-hmm. to motivate me to eat it. Mm-hmm. I realized that didn't work because I was still holding on to this fear of gaining weight. And when I started like embracing body justice and that all bodies of all sizes deserve respect and that includes my body, it helped me so much more conquer my fears and really like stand up for oppression when realizing that like bodies are a vessel to get to you to where you go and aren't the epitome of worth. Mm-hmm. So beautifully said and I could not agree more. I think recovery is such a social justice mission even if the person doesn't really have this awareness that it is at the time because for me in recovery I didn't necessarily Well, I understood how like sexism and things like that were playing a role, but it wasn't until years later that I really reflected on it and saw it more clearly laid out and saw how all these systems of oppression are such an influence on an eating disorder. And by recovery, you're not only gaining back your life, you are doing some really important work, like, because now you can spread some of these new ideas that you've been able to learn through recovery to other people. And that alone is such a, an agent of change. I am so grateful for the recovery community too, of like opening my eyes to all of this. And that helps my recovery so much. And 
inspired me to be such an agent of change I, by meeting people like you and other people who are doing such amazing work and with the body justice movement. Mm-hmm. Totally, totally agree. Where can listeners find you, Lucy, and maybe your book too? My book is on Amazon. Uh, it's mm-hmm. called The Jocks of Becoming. And I'm on Instagram at Lucy underscore shedding underscore wires. Awesome. Go give her a follow, everyone. And definitely check out her book, too. I'm sure it's amazing. Thank you so much, Lucy, for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you.